Hotel Bar Sessions listeners. This is Lee. And as you know, my co-hosts Rick, Jason, and I all have to take a break in between seasons. We are lining up an amazing set of episodes for season seven. But while we're hard at work, we want to give you a little taste of some of the episodes that we've played in the past. So here's a replay of an episode from season two, Robots with David Gunkel. to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. All right, welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Charles Peterson, and I'm sitting here with my two fantabulous co-hosts, Dr. Lee M. Johnson and Dr. Rick Lee. So let's go ahead and let's get some drink orders. Rick, what are you having? I'm going to have an Oktoberfest, and I'm going to have it from a local Chicago brewery called Metropolitan. Very nice, very nice. You got some rants for me? You got some raves? So I'm raving this week about Hannah Gadsby. She has a show out after Nanette, and she basically takes on that show, How the Fuck Do I Follow Nanette? Um, And she does a remarkable job, and she is incredibly smart as a comedian. And she also has autism, which she announces in this special. So, yeah, I'm raving about Hannah Gadsby. My rant this week is... So this is going to be a little bit controversial, but I'm a little upset with the squad coming here and messing with my man, Danny Davis. They're putting up another candidate. And I think at this point, (laughs) the dude is progressive and he's a proven winner. So I'm a little upset with them messing in Chicago's business here. All right. I can feel that. What, What happens in Chicago stays in Chicago. It's a Chicago way. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Lee, talk to me. You sound thirsty. What are you having? I was going to say I wanted to order a champagne for our last episode uh, today of season two, just so we could clink glasses together. But I hate champagne. Actually, I don't don't like wine either, except for sake. Uh, Actually, I'll have a sake. I'll have a whole thing of hot sake. That's what I'm going to have today. My rant this week is actually related to Rick's. I wanted to rant about the DNC's total lack of a plan. Because it does appear that the DNC has just forgotten how to play politics altogether. I think that what we saw in the recall election in California was that the RNC is going all in. They've pushed all in on the big lie for any indication that they might lose an election. It just seems like they're playing politics really well, and we just can't get our people together to do something obviously necessary like get rid of the filibuster. So come on, DNC. Get it together. My rave this week is actually human adaptability. So this is my first semester back in the classroom. I was extremely worried about it, and it is very different. It is absolutely not anything that I would choose. But, you know, I'm really enjoying being back in the classroom, and it is really interesting how quickly and how well we adapt to, in this case, extraordinarily shitty 
uh, conditions. <laughs> Charles, what about you? What are you drinking and ranting and raving about? Oh, I I just need a, a straight whiskey. It's, oh. it's it's been that kind of day. It's really been that kind of couple of days. It's really been that kind of week. Just need a, a straight whiskey because I just need something to numb the pain. I need it to go. Shout out human adaptability. There we go. That's right. That's how, that's how I'm evolving. The fact that we can distill the shit out of whatever it is, I think, is a remarkable human right? achievement. Like human, this is human adaptability. It's like, this plant, will it make me high? Let's see. Let's find out. What happens if I, if I distill a potato? God. God bless that man. Oh, my God. Well, my rant is car ownership. Whoa. Weird. There's always something the damn car needs. There's always something that goes wrong with it. There's always something that breaks. And because nature hates a vacuum, something always breaks (laughs) when I have extra money. (laughs) I don't know what extra money is, but whenever I think I have it, the car is like, no, bastard, give it up. Come on, now. (laughs) I, I broke the hatchback of my van because of my impatience. And now it's going to be like the tilt to world in terms of how much it's going to cost me when I go to the Honda dealership on Friday. So damn cars. It's going to cost you a hundred bucks more than you have. Right. Uh, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> My rave this week is the beauty of humanity. And I say this because the great philosopher Charles Mills passed away tragically way before his time. But in the final months of his life, a group of his friends and colleagues gathered together and they made his remaining time on earth as precious and as beautiful and comforting as possible and the work that they put in out of pure love for him out of pure friendship moves me every time i think about it they gave all of their time and their love to him in his final moment so that's my rave the beauty of humanity because sometimes i forget about that and i'm grateful that they reminded me of it I also just want to echo the absolute heartbrokenness of losing Charles Mills, an absolute titan in our field and a titan among human beings. A tall tree has fallen in the forest. Yeah, I can't imagine a worse loss for our community. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I think Lee is in the hot seat this week. Lee, what are we talking about? So, you guys, today we are finally talking about robots. I absolutely love robots. I want to just be clear right here at the beginning that I use robots as a generic term to refer to intelligent machines generally. And maybe it's worth pointing out that, of course, Not all intelligent machines are robots and not all robots are intelligent machines. And of course, intelligent machines are not equally intelligent in all the same ways. But robots have become interesting to me as a philosopher really in the last probably 15 years. So I actually wrote my dissertation on truth commissions. Um, I was trained in African and African-American studies and 20th century French philosophy, mostly Derrida and deconstruction. So it seems kind of weird. Why would I be interested in robots? But I don't think that it's weird because my interests at the time were really about systems, Derrida would say texts, broadly speaking texts. Lee would uh, say children. Okay, not books. Books are children. Texts are systems. Okay. But my interest in systems and how we evaluate systems as just or unjust really parlayed into my 
becoming really interested in emergent technologies around the late 2000s. I think that we as human beings have a really interesting way of projecting our problems onto imaginary figures. And the three figures that are chief among those are monsters, aliens, and robots. As far as I know, there still are no monsters and aliens, but robots are real. And robots that can do a lot of the things that we've projected onto the imaginary figure of robots are not just sci-fi imaginations anymore. They are actually existing things in our society today. I sometimes worry that people roll their eyes when I talk about robots and intelligent machines as if I'm talking about some distant feature sci-fi mm. imagination. Mm. But it's very important, I think, for people to realize that all of the things that a mere 10, 20 30 years ago, people said were impossible for machines to accomplish. Proficiency at natural language processing, for example. I mean, Siri is only, what, seven years old. If I had told you seven years ago that you could have a cogent, extended conversation with your phone, you would have said like, yeah, maybe in 50 years. Yeah, maybe in 100 years, right? But that's happened in the last 10 years. If I had said to you 10 or 15 years ago, we're going to have machine systems that are capable of learning in an unsupervised way, you would have said, yeah, maybe in 100 years or 50 years. That's happened in the last 20 years, right? We have artificial neural network systems now. But even more mysterious things, like one of the things that people say that machines will never be able to do is have autonomous motives or drives. But it looks like recent research is showing that if you feed machines positive reinforcements, they behave very much like human minds do. They become basically addiction machines. So there's a lot to be said about this, but they have motives and drives, or at least things that we would identify in other human beings as motives and drives. We have to stop talking about robots as if they're just fancy toasters. They're not fancy toasters, <laughs> right? Like they're much more complicated than that. And I really do believe that it is imperative right now, especially people who are working in moral and political philosophy, to talk about intelligent machines in the same way that looking back on history, we would have said philosophers should have been talking more about the printing press, philosophers should have been talking more about the nuclear weapon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So today we're going to talk about robots. Leek, before you go on, could I ask you this? Are you a robot? I, d I am not. Th that was a little hesitant. That wasn't as a clear and an affirmed <laughs> denial as, as I would be comfortable with. Of course, that's what a robot would say. Right, right. You're a little stuttering there, not a little certain. Do I, I violate my prime command of telling the truth? <laughs> I, me, I am me. not a robot. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger, no Will Robinson. <laughs> let, me, let me qualify my... Actually, let me, I do want to address this question. Okay, so I want to say a couple of things. You are not the first person who has asked me if I'm a robot. <laughs> so two things. One thing is that I do think that one of the things that we need to talk about, and hopefully we can talk about this later, is what we're hanging this distinction between humans and robots on. Let me say this. I think that people hang that distinction on the two things about human beings that we understand the least, namely consciousness 
and feelings. So they're like, you can't be a robot because you have feelings or robots won't have feelings or robots don't have consciousness. Like, but we don't like, we don't understand human consciousness or human emotions that well. So I think that those are bad ways to make that distinction. I will also say that I think it's important to continually trouble this distinction between the kind of being that I am and the kind of being that what we now call robots are because, and I'm hoping that we can actually have this as a topic for one of our episodes next season is we're kind of slowly merging into what is sometimes called post-humans. There are more and more people whose actual organic capacities are either being extended by machines or dependent upon machines that have been incorporated into their actual bodies. And so, as you both know, I have two bionic eyes, so maybe (laughs) I'm a post-human, but I'm right now not willing to say that I am a robot. I I don't think you're a robot. I do think you're cyber curious, though. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Big cyber, call us. (laughs) Before we jump into our conversation, we're going to do something that we haven't ever done in this podcast before, which is we're going to play an interview with a guest that we invited onto the podcast. So unfortunately, Charles was not able to be present for this interview, but Rick and I were able to interview David Gunkel who works a lot in uh, emerging technologies and robot rights. And we were able to talk to him about some of his recent work. So we're going to play that first. And then the three of us will come back afterwards and talk about David behind his back. (laughs) I am super excited to announce that today we have our first guest in season two for our last episode of season two. We saved the best for last. <laughs> we have invited David Gunkel to come and talk with us today about robots, about robot rights, about how to survive the robot invasion. Uh, David <laughs> is a professor of communication studies at Northern Illinois University, and he's written quite a bit on this stuff over the last several years. But probably what we're going to concentrate the most on today are two very recent books by David, his 2018 Robot Rights, published by MIT and his 2019 How to Survive a Robot Invasion, published by Rutledge. So, David, welcome to Hotel Bar Session. Yeah, welcome, David. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's really good to be here. So, David, I know that many times in the past you have said that you don't understand why people are still waiting on the robot invasion because it's already here. I just want to give you a chance, maybe just first of all, to tell us what you mean when you say robots. Yeah, so it's a really good question because robot is one of these words that we all think we know what it means until you ask someone, so, okay, define robot. And then all of a sudden (laughs) you get all kinds of stuff in the mix, not only mobile devices, but also your Alexas, your series, things that reside in the cloud. And it's because I think originally the word robot is not misdefined, but I think at least put out there in a very equivocal sense. It comes from Chappick's stage play from 1920 called RUR. And the robots that we see in science fiction tend to have this humanoid form following what was developed in that initial stage play. But the actual robots in our world today are a myriad of different kinds of devices that we encounter in all aspects of our everyday living. 
And it can be a something, you know, very complicated, like your Sophia robot, right, which David Hansen and Hansen Robotics has produced and is very humanoid. But it can also be something very animalistic in its form. It can be zoomorphic as opposed to anthropomorphic, or it can even be ephemeral, like a cloud algorithm that does automated services for us. And the word robot is extended now, I think, in our vernacular to cover all these things. And so when we're talking about robots, I generally don't like to talk about robots in general, but I like to talk about specific robots. Like, mm. what are we actually talking about? What is actually in our discussion at a given time? Because it does change, and everyone has a very different way of looking at these things. So just to follow up on that and, and to clarify, for you then, there are uses of the term robot, or there are robots that could be nothing more than algorithmic bits that are processing data or whatever in, in the cloud. They don't have to be what we would normally call physical machines right here in front of me. Yeah, I th if you look at the literature, that's how the word has been blown up, gotten extended beyond all these things to be applicable to not only the physically embodied entities, but also these immaterial cloud residing entities that we call bots for short, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that is true. I think that talking about robots in terms of their capacities is the way that it may, may be the common thread among the many, many, many different ways that people define robots. So would you agree that most people, when we're talking about robots, are talking about something that can perceive, something that can think, I guess, perform tasks? I mean, that could also be an algorithm. Right. So I think one of the things we're working against here or working with, depending on how you look at it, is science fiction, right? Science fiction yeah. does a lot of prototyping. It's called science fiction prototyping for a reason. So yeah. science fiction has already given us expectations for what robots are prior to a lot of our encounters with actual existing robots. So Star Trek, Star Wars, Battlestar Galactica, all of these things have schooled us in what to expect from robots. Hmm. But then we get out into the real world and we find that the actual robots are much more mundane, much more boring, much less exciting, <laughs> but nevertheless, as crucially important to the evolving social world that we're creating as the ones we see in science fiction. I just think science fiction is a good tool for getting us to talk about these things. But we do have to recognize that it is fiction, right? It does create expectations that in a lot of cases are illusory, or at least not fully informed by the reality. Yeah. And one of the things that science fiction pretty consistently does is anthropomorphize robots. So I know in your robot rights book, which by the way, I really love, I've taught it in my class a couple of times already. It's a fantastic text, but one of the main arguments in your robot rights books is that we've really got to resist this anthropomorphization of robots, both in the sense of thinking about robot rights as exactly the same as human rights, but also in the sense of thinking about robot rights only in terms of how we relate to other human persons. So I, I want to give you a chance, first of all, just to give us the snapshot view of your argument about robot rights or I, I'm hesitant to say for robot rights because I think that it, it's not entirely clear at the end of at least that book that you're unequivocally advocating for robot rights. But yeah, if you could just talk a little bit about your argument in that book. Right. So the book really comes out of like all good philosophy. The book comes out of wonder. So I found people <laughs> talking about robots and robot rights and arguing about it and beginning to evolve this way of thinking. 
And I was wondering, how do we get here? Like, how do we get to the point where this question is a pertinent question for us at this moment in time? And so I thought I could knock this thing off in one easy book. And <laughs> I did this in 2012 with a previous book called The Machine Question. And stupidly, I thought that I could just write one book and be done with it. You know, just look at what people are talking about, figure out the lay of the land and fit the puzzle pieces together and get a feel for what's at stake and why it's important. Little did I know that this thing would have the kind of trajectory of its own that would drag me along with it mm. in a way that I don't control anymore. The text is really in control and I'm the one <laughs> serving it because I thought I, I thought I could just set it aside after that first book. That's a good Duridian right there. Yeah, it is a good Duridian. <laughs> or, or the text is your robot master. Yeah, it is my robot master. Yeah, I serve the text, that's for sure. The text, the text has become this little machine all by itself, and it just turns out this stuff, and I, I'm just required to continually feed it. Um, He's like, thank you, Alexa. <laughs> but it's interesting because it started, I think, early on as more of a theoretical thought experiment. Like, you know, how does this challenge our notion? of rights? How does it challenge our expectations for who is a subject and who is an object or what is an object? How does it challenge our boundaries with regards to moral inclusivity and exclusivity, legal inclusivity, legal exclusivity, etc.? But since that time, it's become actually a real-world decision-making process. I mean, you had the, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia granting honorary citizenship to a robot when Sophia was granted citizenship in 2017. You had the European Union developing legal rules for thinking about robots as electronic persons for the purposes of taxation and social integration. You have someone like Ryan Abbott, who is petitioning courts all over the world to recognize an AI as an inventor on patent applications. Hmm. You have mobile robots in Pennsylvania be given the status of pedestrians for navigating the streets and dealing with traffic incidents. So what began as a theoretical experiment to talk about, you know, what we think with regards to artificial entities and their position in our moral and legal systems has really evolved to be a real world opportunity or challenge, depending on how you look at it. And so Robot Rights, that book from 2018, is really an attempt to map out the entire terrain of what yeah. is in play. Not because I want to stake a claim to one particular location or another, but rather just to get the continents in place and help us understand what is being argued, who's arguing it, what's at stake, and what it all means for us. So can I ask you about the other side of that? And I, I actually did catch an interview with you on, I think it's called Big Little Print or Big Small Print or um, yeah, yeah. something. And at one point, you do a nice job. And if you want to lay that out here, that's fine. I, I don't know if it's crucial of talking about, I think there were six components that belong to rights. And I thought that was very helpful. But at some point, you said that robots are different different kinds of tools. And I'm wondering if, and I don't want to hold you to something you said in an interview, but I'm wondering, like, could we bring some specificity to why my screwdriver is not a robot, but I can't say her name, but the, the woman from Amazon who speaks to me, why she is a robot and, and what might be the specificity of those different kinds of tools? Yeah, this is a really important question. So what we're really struggling against, I think, is the 
divide that we have instituted, especially within Western law and moral philosophy, between things and persons. Mm. This is a binary distinction that we get already from Gaius, the Roman jurist. And most of our legal systems work with a distinction between who is a person, a subject of the law, versus what's a thing that can be possessed as an object within Mm. our legal structures. And we have, within our history, at various times, encountered entities that don't quite fit one category or the other. A good example is the corporation. Mm-hmm. You would like the corporation to be able to be a subject of law so it can be sued. And so it can bring suit and enter contracts and execute contracts. But in order for that to happen, it has to be recognized as a person. So we create this category of artificial person, which is distinct from natural person, as a way to bridge that divide and come up with a third category that's in between person and thing. We're Although now- inter- interestingly, like some of the things that fall into that artificial category of person are natural things like mountains and lakes. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yes. no. and so, so this is yeah. really crucial because what happened was, you know, we, we did this for corporations and then people who are advocating for the rights of nature realized that they could use corporate law mm-hmm. as a way to protect rivers and mountains <laughs> and ecosystems. And especially indigenous cultures have really run with this. They've realized Mm -hmm. that the best way for them to protect their rights in their claim to their ancestral lands is to use corporate law to get the mountain declared a person or to get the river, in the case of Australia, declared a person. So it's a really clever reworking of the corporate legal structure to try to get uh, this recognition for the rights of nature. We are now looking at artifacts that, unlike a screwdriver, have a kind of social presence and a kind of interactivity that is very different from your standard set of tools. And we could classify these things as things, but we're discovering that when we do classify them as things, it's not only abrasive to our moral sensitivities and and intuitions, it's also abrasive to our legal structures. Mm. And so we've got to figure out a way to to fit these things into existing categories, or at least create new ontological categories Mm. within our moral and legal systems in order to create a future that is worth having, that is worth living in, where we're not restricting things too much, nor opening things too much. Mm. And I think the real struggle right now is to try to figure out what is this new legal ontology? What is this new moral ontology in the face of these, these new challenges? Yeah, I know that you've said many times that you think that this battle is going to be fought in the courts, like how it is that we understand the sort of ontology and moral status, if any, of robots, but also how we expand or restrict our notion of rights to apply to non-human objects or natural things. So this is going to sound like a curveball, but I promise I'm getting back to this point. But I was thinking just recently about this roboticist Ishiguro who, you know, started the Gemini project, which is Mm -hmm. an Android project many, many years ago. His laboratory is one of the first laboratories to create social robots. Those little pet, you know, those little things that looked like seals or whatever that they put in nursing homes and Ishiguro always said that his real interest in humanoid robots was trying to decide if the Japanese word is sonzaikon, if there's something like the human presence that can be transmitted in something that is not a human. Now, I know that you want to resist the over-anthropomorphization of non-human objects, but I do actually really like that what 
Ishiguro was trying to focus on was adjusting our moral attitude, our moral disposition towards these artifacts so that it doesn't just get worked out piecemeal in the courts as a legal status. And I'm wondering if there isn't some merit to starting on that overly anthropomorphic, but moral sense of what rights are and moral sense of how we interact with artifacts, natural artifacts and artificial artifacts, which I guess is redundant. But you know what I'm saying? Yeah. No. And in fact, it's not a curveball at all because I totally agree with you. I mean, my entire effort has been to get out in front of this before it happens. Right, right. Because I'm worried it is going to happen in the courts and we're not going to be ready for it. Hmm. That we're going to have judges who have no right or no knowledge of robots to be able to make these decisions. And that if we can, as moral philosophers, get out in front of this problem and start to create the framework for the way we think about these things and the way that we make these decisions, we're going to be in a much better situation than allowing it to happen ad hoc, piecemeal, you know, through a bottom-up approach. I think we do need to have some top-down structuring to the conversation so that we know what is at stake and why it's important. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I've said many times that I am much less concerned about the, you know, to use your terminology, the robot invasion, right? Like the the coming of our future robot overlords. Then I am concerned about inadvertently enslaving conscious sentient beings without even knowing what you're doing. So I think that there is something that we really have to, as you say, get out ahead of on the plane of moral sensibilities before legal and more importantly, corporate and economic sensibilities. But what what I think, David, is interesting about your point is that you also want to divorce the question of robot rights from the question of consciousness. And I take it for you, that would be the same as not confusing or challenging the simple binary between thing and person. No, exactly right. Yeah. I I think that if we tie this to consciousness, we risk exactly what Lee just mentioned, that we, we might be in the situation of waiting too long before we mm-hmm. do anything proactive and responsive that is responsible to these kinds of entities that we're creating. You know, if you look at the way artificial person has evolved within our own lifetime, we didn't wait for corporations to become conscious, right? We needed a way to fit them into our moral and legal systems before that. And I think it's going to be the same with robots. We're going to need to fit them into our world in a way that a wait and see approach isn't going to be adequate. It's going to be too late if we wait and see. I really like the way that you said that, because I think you're exactly right, that if we work this out through the courts, then it's always going to be about liability and responsibility and responsibility in the very restricted blameworthiness Mm -hmm. sense. And rather, it seems like what we really need to be working out is how are we going to share a world with these new beings that we Mm -hmm. don't entirely understand and that we may never understand? So I think there are a number of ways to challenge accepted ways of thinking when it comes to dividing the world into thing and person. One way is to look beyond Western modes of thinking. And I think Ishiguru and the Shinto experience that he brings into his work, I think is very important because it does look at things as being ensouled, as being animate, and being able to be a part of a moral community in a way that Westerners would find very abrasive, especially out of a Christian tradition. Mm -hmm. In my own work, 
I've worked mainly with Levinas because I, I find the Jewish tradition to be another way to open up avenues of inquiring about these limitations and these restrictions. And that isn't to say any one of these ways is better. They're just different, right? And they're different in important ways that open critical thinking opportunities for us to challenge accepted ways of, of behaving and accepted ways of deciding what counts and what doesn't. And I don't think there's any one right way to do this. I think it is a plurality of ways and that we need to open a dialogue on these matters. But I think getting other perspectives involved in looking through how these decisions have been made and how we justify them, I think is important for us. I tell my students this all the time. It isn't like I care about the robots and how they're going to feel, right? <laughs> I mean, it isn't like I care about hurting Alexa's feelings or about what Sophia might feel if I say something bad about her. What I'm really concerned with is the integrity of our moral and legal systems as we move into the future. So I'm really concerned about fitting these things, as, as Lee said, into our social reality in a way that makes sense for us and that makes sense for our future. And that means not necessarily thinking about the consciousness of the robot or do robots feel pain or will we harm the robot, but rather what are we doing to ourselves? What are we doing to the communities that we are a part of if we don't make these decisions in a way that takes into account how we feel, how we adjust ourselves, how we respond to the challenges of these artificial others? I, I think for me, coming into your conversation about this, your writing and, and the interview I, I caught, I, I, I was really surprised and challenged by the constant presence of the social and society in, in your work. And I find this, following from what you just said, I find this a really important and, to borrow Lee's phrase, a philosophically deep question. And I started thinking about this sort of from Marx's notion of the fetishism of commodities, just in a structural way, because I think what your emphasis on robot rights or your bringing this as a question does is to say, wait a second, how actually, even without the robots, how have we been relating to one another as humans? And how much of our life has been relating to one another through things without even recognizing that things have been mediating our social relations? In which case, all of these legal issues like, you know, liability, uh, blame, as Lee pointed out. And then the third one is property or ownership. Like, like whose is this? I, I find this question, I, I really appreciate the way in which you bring this question of robot rights to this question of how do we live with one another? And is this the way we want to live with one another? You know, thanks. No, it's, it's a really important insight. I, I do think you're exactly right. We do relate to each other through the mediation of things, all kinds of things. And this has been the way in which, and I think Marx really nailed it when he talked about the commodity fetish, right? And now we have a chance, I think, and I think this is the importance of this moment in time, to rethink these relationships, hmm. not only to our objects, but to other subjects right. and how we want to shape a future. And I sometimes you know, look to indigenous cosmologies as ways of, of helping us do this, because I think a lot of the indigenous cosmologies have a very different way of relating to the world and each other and to the things, either artificial or natural. It, again, is not a, a panacea solution, but it is a different way of addressing the questions 
and developing uh, a critical attitude uh, towards these things. But I think we're going to miss a real opportunity here if we don't use this as a way of opening up this, these avenues of inquiry and really challenging ourselves and each other to get really serious about how we want to think about our future. You know, David, I completely agree with you that, as you've argued many times, that the rigidly Eurocentric anthropomorphization of other kinds of subjects is going to be problematic if we're going to work this question out in the courts, that we might box ourselves in and make worse problems out of the problem that we already have. But I do want to say that I think that at least in Western countries, that there is still some merit to hanging on to the anthropomorphization of robots in advance. So I'm reminded, I was just teaching uh, Sartre last week, and I was reminded of this quote by Sartre where he says, in order to treat a man like a dog, you first have to recognize that he's a man. So there's this sense in which that in order to establish in law, as we saw throughout the Jim Crow era, that Blacks were not persons deserving of the full battery of rights as their fellow white citizens, they first had to recognize that they actually were deserving of that, right, in order to restrict it. And so there was a real merit in going back one step and saying, you recognize this as a person, like you recognize this other as a person like you. And it's because you recognize them as a person deserving of the same full rights as you that you're restricting them, right? And so I do think that there is some merit to that. I know that you've talked about this a lot before, and Kate Darling does a lot of work on this with animal rights. You know, it's like that there is a a way in which in as much as we do consciously or unconsciously import these anthropomorphic characteristics to animals, we're more likely to have a virtuous moral disposition towards them as others. Now, that is not to say that there aren't entire other ontologies that might be you know, better equipped to deal with these questions. But as we say in this podcast quite often, like, are the horses already out of the barn on that? Do we just have to work with the tools that we have in these cultural conditions? And so I guess I'm wondering whether or not there might be some danger in overemphasizing this strategy of not anthropomorphizing robots? It seems to me that there's a lot of benefit to anthropomorphizing robots. So let me say, I'm not at all against anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism happens. It is what we do. We are wired (laughs) anthropomorphized. The only way we can relate to each other is by anthropomorphizing each other. Exactly. Yeah. That we project on others expectations that we bring from ourselves and then construct the other with whom we have this relationship. Take, for example, your dog, right? We, we anthropomorphize our dogs all the time. Like my dog looks at me and I will say, you know, oh, she's happy to see me or she loves me. No, she's just playing me for the food, right? <laughs> how, how do I not know that there's well, That's weird because my dog loves brand. me. Yeah, no. <laughs> So anthropomorphism is really useful, and it's something that we can't not do. I mean, if you look at the uh, early experiments done with colleague where they had the moving square and and circle on the screen, uh, it was just an animated film, but people attributed personality to the various Mm -hmm. moving objects. Mm -hmm. And that's because movement is something that fires up anthropomorphism. If you look at the CASA studies, the computer social actor studies done by Byron Reeves and Clifford Noss in the 1990s and beyond, it seems that anthropomorphism is not something you could ever stop from happening. But what I think is crucial is we've got to learn how to manage it. We've got to learn how on both the design side and the user side 
to effectively manage the anthropomorphism for our benefit so that we're not expecting too much or too little out of these mm. artifacts. And mm. I think that's something we haven't paid enough attention to. I think a lot of the debate, unfortunately, has been should we or shouldn't we, which is a very binary kind of decision that says either we do it or we don't. I think we do it and we figure out how best to do it and make that our focus. It's interesting because I often feel like this discussion of corporate personhood, like when people laugh at that, oh, corporations are people, I wonder when can I marry IBM? I I mean, it fails to recognize, and you went back to Roman law, the long history of person, meaning not a human, but precisely that which is allowed to appear in a court case. I'm more familiar with the history of canon law and Going back centuries, churches have been people, you know, canon legal persons and so on. And and so I'm wondering, is there any benefit in thinking through the fact that person was initially merely a legal definition that applied to more things besides humans? And by the way, one of the uses of the Latin word persona was to translate the Greek term that meant their theater masks, right? right? And, and so person was precisely not what we would call a person today, but rather the mask, and the mask can appear in court. You're not being against anthropomorphism and worrying about over-anthropomorphizing. Would there be a way to talk about robot rights by rehabilitating this older notion of person or is that horse already out of the bar? Yeah, no, this is really, this is great because this is the next book. Ah, <laughs> cool. I'm working on something right now, which has the tentative title, Thing, Person, Robot, an Ontology for the 21st Century. The idea is to go back to the origin, the etymology of our word person in persona and recognize how that masking, that appearance that is created artificially hmm. allows for us to have a much more elastic understanding of what we mean by the word person that doesn't necessarily tie us to human being equals person, which mm-hmm. I think is, is where the problems happen. I think it also happens in the area of rights. When people say robot rights, then you know re- immediately recoil, like, oh my God, you're gonna allow the robots to vote and marry and you know all this sort of stuff. We've got to recognize Oh, that. if we could only allow the robots to vote, we'd be so yeah. much better off. <laughs> Wouldn't we? From your mouth to the robot overlord's ears. (laughs) But I think it's really important to recognize that rights are a bundle of social recognitions and that different entities have different bundles of rights. The bundle of rights that belong to the artificial person we call the corporation or, as Rick was just mentioning, the church, are different bundles of rights than what human beings have. The bundle of rights that people are asking an elephant to have through the non-human rights project are different than the rights that a human being would have. And I think one of the things that both sides in the debate get wrong is to immediately assume that we're talking human rights for robots. Hmm. We're not. We're talking about a bundle of rights that would be different. There may be overlaps. There may be places where there would be some difference. But we've got to be really specific about, again, not only the robot we're talking about, but what are the rights we're talking about? What privileges, claims, powers, and immunities are actually in play and up for discussion in relating to this particular object and, and what you know we would want to extend to it. 
So I know we're running up against the end of our time, but I have a kind of wrap up question. So if you could pick one area or one strategy that you think is the thing that we should be advocating now or the thing that we should be encouraging people to pay attention to now. And and I get it that everywhere there are things that are important, right? I mean, I sometimes worry that there are just so many people who don't have just a very basic understanding of the technology that they use, that that's where we have to start. We just have to start with, do people understand what an algorithm is? Do people understand what AI is? Do people understand what machines are capable of and incapable of? And then they can figure it out from there. But then I also recognize that there are immediately pressing questions that are devastating people's lives every day, like the way that Compass works or PredPol, you know, in the justice system and the Mm -hmm. policing system. And maybe we just need to start with those things or autonomous vehicles or wherever. But what would you say, you know, if I had to start a petition right now, sign people up for a movement right now, where is it? Wow, that's a really good question. <laughs> I want to I want to answer with so many different things. I mean, obviously, you've got algorithmic bias, you've got right. self-driving vehicles and trolley problems. I mean, there's, you know, you, you start to parse this out and you can find all kinds of things that people are very passionate about and wanting to really stake a claim to. But let me make a case for something that we tend not to focus on or at least don't give enough attention to where I think a lot is happening. And if we don't keep an eye on it, it's going to happen without us noticing how things have changed. And that's in the area of computational creativity. Mm. So we have said to ourselves about our machines, sure, we'll let Netflix tell us which film to watch and play the role of movie and film critic. Sure, we'll let Elon Musk design cars that drive us to our destination all by themselves, apparently, without accidents, hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Sure. We will allow for warehouse robots at Amazon to select the products that we order online and get them to us efficiently. We're going to let robots do all these things. That's perfectly fine. It's convenient. We all love it. It's great. The one place we're going to draw the line in the sand to say this is the line you do not cross is creativity. I know it's weird, isn't it? Because it's the thing that we think makes us special. Yeah. Mm. And if we can draw that line and, and maintain that barrier between us and them, on the aspect of creativity, then we will have at least protected our human exceptionalism, apparently, from the robot invasion. (laughs) I think that's a really bad argument because robots and algorithms are creative, right? Holly Herndon is working with Spawn and creating amazing music down at Georgia Tech University. Gil Weinberg has created the Shimon robot, which now writes original music and performs it with human musicians in real time. We had David Cope years ago with Emmy and his algorithmic composer that created classical music scores that were indistinguishable from Bach, Beethoven, and Chopin. We've got the Obvious Collective in Paris creating new artworks that are sold at auction by Christie's for half a million dollars. We have robot artists. And we We have have GPT-3 that's writing novels. (laughs) Exactly. Writing novels, writing poetry, all kinds of things. I think before we have the problem of assigning liability to a self-driving car, we're going to have to decide who the author is. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to decide who the artist is. I think Ryan Abbott in pursuing this in patent law, asking about algorithmic inventor is really forward thinking Mm -hmm. because he not only is thinking outside the box with regards to the technology, but also challenging a lot of legal and moral expectations about how we attribute creativity and inventiveness to ourselves. And this is where I think the big innovations are going to happen. 
And the problem is because it's creative, it seems like it's one of those things that is entertaining and therefore not as dire or as important as algorithmic bias or as trolley problems with self-driving vehicles, because that's where the catastrophic stuff happens. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested in catastrophic stuff. I'm interested in these more mundane, but really innovative inventions that are taking place elsewhere in the mm-hmm. area of computational creativity. It sounds like you're not so much worried about the robot invasion as you are worried about the robot slow creep. <laughs> yeah, slow, slow creep is a really great way to put it. I explain it to my students this way. You know, if you're looking for the robots to invade with guns and descend from the heavens or rise up against their human masters in a kind of revolt, you're looking in the wrong place because it is a slow creep. Yeah. One day we're going to wake up and we're going to say, where did all the robots come from? Well, David, you've given us a lot to think about, and I so appreciate you taking time out to talk with us here on Hotel Bar Sessions. We're definitely going to invite you back next season. And we'll pick up your tab. Very good. Thank you. It should be clear from the interview that I am really interested in the way David is rethinking this notion of person and personhood. But I'm still not entirely clear what David means by robots, for example, being part of society in ways that other tools are not. Because if I think of even like a straightforwardly, well, no, I guess this wouldn't be so straightforwardly, but a kind of Heideggerian analysis of a screwdriver, there is a way in which I encounter that screwdriver within a world, and that world is definitely, Heidegger wouldn't go all the way, but at least in part socially constituted. And so I think all sorts of things are social objects. And so I'm still not clear just what he means by saying robots have a unique, let's say, role in society or in relation to society. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think that I could give you a few examples, I think, of ways that your interaction with robots or intelligent machines differs from your interaction with a toaster or a screwdriver. But the most Lee, what do you have one, against toasters? Do you really <laughs> hate toast? Any. You are really fixated about this. Isn't you she? Are really fixed. This is your go-to <laughs> example. <laughs> I don't have anything against toasters. <laughs> okay, A, big toaster, call us. But, but B, I, th- I think that toasters are a very simple machine. Mm. That's why I use toasters. Okay. But I think that, to get back to Rick's question, I think that, for example, the way that you interact with your phone or Alexa is dramatically, substantially, meaningfully different than the way that you interact with a screwdriver or a toaster, primarily because you're speaking to it and it's speaking back to you. You share a language, which is not what we share with non-human animals and is not what we share with nature. That is the main difference, I think, is that we have a meaningfully social, arguably moral and political relationship with some of these robots. I think the other thing, too, is that many of the robots, and now I'm speaking even more generally like algorithms in the way that David was talking about them, interact with us in ways that demonstrate an understanding of us that is 
dramatically different than the way that inanimate objects and non-human animals or nature interact with us. So, for example, the Google search algorithm, the Netflix recommendations, all of the social media algorithms seem to know what you want. They seem to understand you in ways that, in fact, you don't understand yourself because you just don't have the cognitive capacity to recognize patterns in your own behavior that these machine intelligences can recognize in your behavior and tell you about yourself. You can recognize them when those patterns are pointed out to you, but that you wouldn't be able to articulate yourself. So again, I think that, you know, just to answer Rick's question, these are just two I think very clear examples of the ways in which our interactions with robots are significantly, meaningfully, dramatically different than our interactions with other sorts of tools. This is outside of my wheelhouse normally, so I'm really enjoying this conversation and this topic because I'm really learning. I think Rick's question is a brilliant one. And I'm trying to think through your answer of presuming a certain type of sentience or consciousness on the part of, say, the Netflix algorithm or the Apple Music algorithm, or any of those. And I wonder, is it really a type of sentience, or is it simply a recognition of certain qualities, percentage of occurrence? One of the earlier streaming services that I was interested in was Pandora, because it had this musical genomic project, Mm -hmm. where it was able to identify like 300 separate characteristics of music, and then based on that, it could help you to make selections and create playlists. Is that really a sentience? Is that a thinking Or is that just a certain, as you said, a pattern recognition? You know, some of Lee's work, I think, moves in this direction. And certainly David in in the interview moved in this direction. Part of the interest in thinking about robots is that, so Lee, earlier, you referred to this as an imaginary. So the robot, the alien, the monster. I would actually, following Lee Edelstein, also add the child to that projected imaginary. But anyhow, part of that projection then allows us to see ourselves. And so then I'm starting to wonder how much of what you might call Rick's intelligence is just pattern recognition. How much of my sentience is just applying a certain, I think it would have to be called an algorithm, based on the data I've accumulated about past instances that look very much like this. And so, you know, Charles, I might be able to recommend to you, hey, check this song out. I think you'll really like it based on the fact that we sat and spent an evening listening to music together. And I heard you say, oh, I really like that because of this and so on. And then I'm the Music Genome Project. And so I think for me, one of the interesting things about this question, and as Lee put it earlier, like just where do we put the separation, is are are we so sure about all of these characteristics we've given ourselves as humans once we're confronted with something that can behave in remarkably similar ways? No, I've never been sure about these characteristics that we have given ourselves as humans. I've never been of the mind that we have some absolute monopoly on or specific or unique characteristic that makes us thoroughly human and sets us apart from the rest of the natural world. So I'm not saying that I'm not one of these people at all, despite the fact that I argued for the humanities last week. (laughs) (laughs) I guess what I'm really saying is we have to, instead of readjusting and, and rethinking how we're defining sentience and consciousness upon robots, I think we have to start rethinking ourselves. So it's not a question of how do we move robots close to us. I think we have to say, how are we more like them? 
Charles, I completely agree with you th that last part that we really do have to start thinking about how are we more like them. But if I could just quickly go back, it's very important to me to not hang any of these questions, moral, political, social, economic, or otherwise, about the supposed difference between ourselves and machine intelligences or robots on things like sentience or consciousness. Right. Uh, because we're all philosophers here. We all understand the problem of other minds, right? Like, I don't know that you're sentient. I presume that you can, for example, experience pleasure and pain because I see patterns in your behavior that replicate patterns in my own behavior when I experience pleasure and pain. I assume that you have motives and drives and autonomy because I see patterns in your behavior that replicate patterns in my behavior that I experience as someone who conceives of themselves as having motives and drives and also is free. So I suppose what I think is really great about what has emerged as the c capabilities in machine intelligence over the last 20 years is that it's given us really concrete things to look at, just like we look at other human beings, just like we look at non-human animals, just like we look at both organic and inorganic natures, and to say what is similar and different between us, but more so how does this help me understand my being in the world with others? I think that what we absolutely can see is that our being in the world with robots, again, using robots loosely as intelligent machines, very much approximates the kinds of systems that we see in our being in the world with other human beings or, you know, those that we take to be other human beings. And so we have very similar kinds of expectations of obligations and duties and also responsibilities with machine intelligences that we do with other human beings. And I think that we kind of see this with non-human animals, depending on how broad and expansive your capacity to consider rights and responsibilities and obligations to non-human animals are. But we definitely have social relationships with machine intelligences. And so to me, the question is not, are they sentient like me? Are they conscious like me? Do they have bodies like me? Clearly, none of those things are the case. None of those things are isomorphically identical. But they have something that I recognize as an intelligence, as like a consciousness, as like sentience, as like a language, as like a relationship that I have with other human beings. That seems to me to be the more important thing. So one of the things I hear in, in what you're saying, Lee, that I can wholeheartedly affirm is that for too long, our moral theory has focused on the capacities that belong to what we might call a moral agent. And all sorts of horrors develop when we focus on the agent part of the moral equation. So this leads to the mistreatment of non-human animals. This leads to focusing, for example, on whether the indigenous peoples of the Americas have the capacities to be moral agents and so on. And so what I like about what you've said is maybe do we learn anything relevant when we learn whether something can be a moral agent or not. We do, however, 
need to focus on what comes into the sphere of being affected by my actions if I take myself to have all the capacities of being a moral agent. Could I just jump in right there and just say really quickly that I think the question is not, does this other, whatever the other is, rise to the level of my moral consideration? The question is, is my moral consideration considerate enough to consider this? No, so so I I totally agree. And I, I think the second part of what you said that I thought was really important to hang on to was that, so you came out as a deconstructionist earlier in this episode, and there are all sorts of schools of 20th and 21st century French philosophy for which otherness was the main focus. And now here we are confronted with perhaps an otherness that outstrips even our thinking of otherness. And that to that extent, we need at the very least to exercise some moral caution here because of the radical alterity of the robots with whom we share our lives in our space. Yeah, I want to get away from any sort of question of humanity moral perspective or systems or the question of rights should not be grounded in that. Part of my work has been, and a lot of it comes from Sylvia Winter, is looking at the early modern construction of this thing called the human and how so specifically geographically and racially construed it is. So inherently, this idea of humanity is going to have these really problematic limits that will not allow for us to embrace the the consciousness, the entities, the beings that we're going to loosely call robots, intelligent machines. How do we develop a sensitivity toward this new type of being, this other that arguably has taken over? I'm thinking about the interview and the use of the corporation as an example of how we can begin to expand this idea of the human. And that actually made me twitch because I'm thinking about the relationship of the corporation to the American Constitution and its abuse of the 14th Amendment and what that meant for African-Americans. That's a whole ball of wax that I don't think I really want to engage in. I don't even want to use human as any sort of foundation of thinking about where we're going with this. I really appreciate you saying that, Charles. I think that David Gunkel would be entirely sympathetic with your claim that there is a Eurocentric, imperialistic undercurrent to any question that uses the Eurocentric, imperialistic understanding of humanity as a standard for deserving political, economic, moral rights at all. I think where it gets tricky is that we have to acknowledge that the emergence of that discourse, that particular Eurocentric discourse about humanity, is historically coincidental with the emergence of the discourse of rights that we now use, both moral rights and political rights. And so it may be the case that if we're going to stop talking about humanity, we also have to stop talking about rights as the kind of buoys in the sea of our moral and political interactions. And that's why I'm much more interested in the ways that machine intelligences and our interactions with robots gives us reason, good reason, to say it's time to get rid of that whole kind of painting with broad strokes here, enlightenment schema 
of the individual human being as a bearer of moral and political rights and responsibilities, and instead to start thinking about systems. And this is what I think is absolutely exhilarating about what's going on in AI ethics right now, is that we're talking about the way that systems are able to reproduce racism, are able to reproduce sexism, are able to evaluate a world that is racist and sexist, and in that evaluation, reproduce that very world as a fact. And so I think that this should be really exciting for philosophers. It's a chance to get out of this discourse that very often causes us to paint ourselves into corners where it's like, okay, do we give dogs right or dolphins right or mountains rights or robots rights? Maybe that's not the question. Maybe the question is, how do we reframe our discussion of our social, political, moral, and economic systems such that they're not dependent on these distinctions between rights bearers and rights deservers and those that are not bearers or deserving of rights? I really appreciate that, Lee, because I think what you show is how much our discourse about ethics has borrowed its entire language and way of thinking from a juridical context, namely legal codes and thoughts about laws, in in which case something like rights make a whole lot of sense. And I think we need to work really hard to separate then our thinking about ethics and morality from this question of legality and the juridical. That being said, it seems to me like there are two moments here. One moment is in the meantime, that is before we can have an impact on affecting the discourse about ethics and morality, these legal questions are going to come up. And I think part of David's point is that we have a lot of stupid judges, or I I should say judges that don't know a whole lot about algorithms. They don't know a whole lot about how intelligent machines are produced and so on. And so we have then this problem of how to, I mean, right now we have algorithms that can write other algorithms. And David pointed out in the interview, there are some people who are thinking, well, wait a second, that algorithm needs to have copyright, like ownership of the algorithm it produced, in which case then that algorithm has to be a person, a subject of a law. And these are all really complicated questions that we need to address in the meantime. And I think underpinning this is a really exciting and complex ontological question we're only just now thinking through. If I could just go all the way back to the very first episode of this season, when we were talking about Charles's now published book on citizenship, I think that it's going to fundamentally require that we formulate a new understanding of what a shared political world is. And a shared political world includes non-human animals, it includes the natural world, and it includes corporations, sorry, Charles, and machine intelligences. So if we want to address the injustices of our shared political world, which we as citizens feel the effects of, we've got to reimagine the system, not reimagine the laws, not reimagine the rights and responsibilities of those various participants in that system. Well, I would say systems, and and you've said this, and I hate to be redundant, but to reimagine the fundamental definition of all that is. Word. 
I think about pre-modern societies and the ways in which they were able to think about, define, organize the various beings within their, you know, not just cosmological or not just metaphysical, but within their actual physical worlds and the type of relationships that were expressed through certain type of ritualistic actions or even the most banal actions were an acknowledgement of something much more complex than what we have with this whole discussion of citizenship and rights and quote-unquote human-to-human engagement and everything else in the background. And and I think that's one of the reasons why in David's work, he thinks it's absolutely crucial to take up the thinking of indigenous thinkers, non-Western thinkers who, as you just put it, Charles, have approached the world in which they find themselves in ways that are not the same as those of us who are influenced by the Enlightenment. It's also probably worth reminding ourselves that even in the Western canonical tradition, there have been many additions and many subtractions to the systems of agency that we understand that form our collective world. We've added and subtracted gods. We've added and subtracted ethers. We've added and subtracted all kinds of imaginary and non-imaginary beings. So Yeah, I mean, I think that we are living in a moment, and by a moment, I mean the last 30 years. We are living in a moment that, I don't want to sound like Hegel, but has world historical significance. (laughs) Things will never be the same after this. And exactly as David said, if we are not out ahead of it as philosophers, then we really just need to retire our tams and gowns and go home. I think an awful lot about this question in relation to labor. So one of the ways in which robots belong to our social world is because, so the story goes, they're taking our jobs. And I listened to this other podcast called Planet Money, and they had an episode about the Luddites recently. And this was the issue, was that the machines are taking our jobs. If they're taking our jobs do they deserve a salary? And if not, then holy fuck, there's way more surplus value that's being generated in (laughs) capitalism today than there ever was before. And where's all that going? You guys, we have wrapped up season two. Can you believe it? Yay! Yay! Okay, so after today's episode, we're going to take a short three-week break to to have a drink together, (laughs) (laughs) after which we will return with a whole new slate of topics. I want to remind everybody that you can go to our website, www.hotelbarpodcast.com, and click on the interactive page. We do have a form there where you can suggest topics for future episodes. We're also going to be interviewing more people in season three. So if you have something coming out or something you really want to talk about that you think might be interesting to us, please do contact us. Uh, we'd love to interview Well, it's been a fantastic first season, drinking and jawing and laughing and really digging into some very real and deep topics. So I want to thank both of you for this time together. This don't feel like work, and I really appreciate that. <laughs> I, I could not uh, agree more. And I have to say that, you know, some of my topics as the days were approaching, I was like, oh, shit, we're not going to have anything to talk about. And then we all get together and the two of you step up and like find the... <laughs> 
the nugget in, in even the lamest of topics I would propose. Like, who would have thought specializations would have turned out to be a really interesting topic? But there you go. So I can't wait for next season. All right, you guys. So for the final time for season two, we are. Oh, wait. We have to thank Frangelica. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Frangelica. Frangelica, enjoy your vacation from us. Yes. Frangelica is not returning next season. So we're going to have a new bartender next season. We don't know who he or she is or them. It might be a robot. We don't know who (laughs) the bartender next season will be, but we will let you know. Please tune back in. Tell your friends, Hotel Bar Sessions, and you guys, I will catch you for season three. All right. Take care. Lee, are you a robot? (laughs) (laughs) I am a bartender. (laughs) Oh, my God.